Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. To put it simply, Russia just announced that it is carving out a big chunk of Ukraine. Last night, Putin authorized Russian forces to deploy into the region, these regions. Today, he asserted that these regions are actually extend deeper than the two areas he recognized, claiming large areas currently under the jurisdiction of the Ukraine government. He's setting up a rationale to take more territory by force, in my view. And if we listened to his speech last night, and many of you did, I know, he's, uh, he's setting up a rationale to go much further. This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, as he indicated and asked permission to be able to do from his Duma. So, Murphy, uh, that is this afternoon, President Joe Biden um, announcing essentially from the government's point of view that the Russian invasion that they have long talked about and predicted uh, has started. And he goes on in that speech uh, to announce the first tranche of sanctions by the U.S. Uh, on the Ukrainians. Um, quite a uh, uh, quite a fast moving few days. Yeah, the Russians are coming. And ironically, we have voices in the Republican Party who seem to be cheering him on. Old Dutch Reagan is probably spinning in his coffin, and I'm with him on this. Um, So, you know, we're in a very volatile situation. The Putin dreams of a reunited Russia. And people forget that the uh, a lot of people think the modern Slavic Russia was Kievan Rus. Started in Kiev about 1050 A.D., so, you know, in the Russian world, they think it's their Texas and they're doing anything to get it, um, including shatter international law and kill innocent people. Whenever, whenever you send peacekeepers via an armored division, um, <laughs> there's not a lot of peace involved. So the yeah. stakes are rising fast. It's going to be a real test of Biden and a test of Biden's ability to communicate, where I think they've really struggled here uh, since he was elected. And anyway, and we got the I've- State of the Union coming up, big seven-day period here. A week till the first big speech, the first big uh, State of the Union speech. Who should we have on the show to talk about something like Murphy, that, Murphy, my spotty sense has picked up that you are introducing a segue. And uh, let's bring in, because I think if we're going to talk about speeches and the States of the Union uh, and, and communications, our guest, John Favreau, obviously a famous actor and director. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. That's that's the wrong Wikipedia page, Favreau. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no. I know. We sorry. tried to get oh, that guy, but that's we couldn't. A mix up, right? Yeah. We. <laughs> Brutal. I'm sorry. I had to do it. Uh, John Favreau, welcome. What's up, hackeroos? <laughs> welcome. <laughs> We're glad to finally have you on. John is uh, probably needs no introduction, but let me add a little. Uh, from 2009 to 2013, led presidential speech writing uh, at the White House. Um, that included a couple of inaugurals, um, more states of the union than he probably wants to talk about. Before that, uh, worked for Senator Obama uh, in both his Senate office and then in the presidential campaign. In 2017, started Crooked Media, where uh, he hosts uh, the world-famous Pod Save America and just added a weekly podcast that he's been working on, but uh, offline, which... Um, his wife reminds him that that requires him then to spend more time online. Uh, so sign up for that podcast. But John, thank you for uh, spending a little time with us today. Thank you for having me. We are um, all very big fans of Hacks on Tap at Crooked Media. We are such big fans that we have a Slack channel that's just called uh, Hacks on Slack, where we talk about Hacks on Tap episodes. That's awesome. Just want you to know that we have a lot of big fans here. A lot of big fans. Oh, wow. Well, we're going to have to send you some beer mugs available in our merchandise store. Oh, my store. God. Love yeah, the All right. Beer we'll mugs. work that out a little payola here. It is radio-ish <laughs> uh, after the show. All right. Well, do we want to start, Robert, with the Ukraine and then go to the making of yeah, a I think, State uh, of the Union speech, I, right? I, I, you know, I think most of this we want to spend on State of the Union, but kind of hard to swerve away from uh, the, the the big news of the day. And, and Murphy, from your perspective, um, you know, the, the Biden has, has talked about this happening for a long time. And John, you weigh in on this too. Um, is he, is he meeting the moment? Is he, is he, th- th- there's a, there's a big seven days ahead of him, but nothing probably really as big as this, because, uh, we're talking about the first 
potentially the first land war in Europe since the Nazis surrendered. Yeah. Um, so I actually, as an old Cold War hawk, give Biden pretty good marks on how he's handled it strategically. He's escalated the pain, the threat of pain. He's reunited NATO, which Trump had torn apart. NATO's in better shape now than ever before. It even looks like he got the peace-loving Germans to agree to a tough policy in a bit of historical irony. So all in all, he's handled it pretty well. The problem is, you know, Putin is free to make a lot of trouble if Putin wants to pay the price of pain. So, you know, he reached into his old KGB Soviet playbook, and now it's time for salami tactics. He's grabbing the two provinces that he already halfway had that are disputed. The question is, does he keep going, and how does the escalation ladder work out? Now, I, I was calling for a long time on the podcast and in our Hex on Tap bulletin newsletter for Biden to do a big foreign policy speech. And they did one, but I thought it was they didn't swing for the fences like they, I think they could have. And my argument was that Biden needed to explain what was going on to the American people and explain that either outcome is something we're prepared for and can prevail on. Putin invades, becomes a pariah, unites NATO against him, crippling sanctions of a scope we've never done before, which really have teeth, uh, or Putin is detour deterred. So I think they kind of blew that opportunity, but on a policy strategic basis, uh, I think he's, he's, he's done pretty well here. I don't, I don't have a lot to criticize though. Now as the stakes crank up, um, you know, so is the, so is the uh, risk and pressure on him to be able to navigate through this. Fever, I'm like Murphy. I, I'm I was an advocate for, and you remember, I, I did this more than more than my fair share when we were in the White House together. I, I don't think presidents use the primetime address anymore to their to their advantage. Now, I, I get that audiences are lower and polarization uh, has evaporated some of that. But w what do you, what do you think about the the public rollout? of both what Biden is doing, but also I, I think there's a big, big need to explain what this is going to mean for the American people, because they may not understand exactly where Ukraine is, but their gas prices are going up. Well, I totally agree. And he didn't really do that today in the set of remarks. Like, I think there is an argument for a primetime address on this. I think one of the reasons for that is we're going to talk about this in a bit, but he's got the State of the Union on March 1st. And you don't want a huge chunk of the State of the Union taken up by the first time you're addressing the nation, at least in prime time, on this crisis. So it might be nice to sort of get it out of the way before you get to the State of the Union in a week or so. Um, but, you know, watching the statement today, it did sound a little bit like it came directly out of the interagency process, like it was written by a lot of State Department bureaucrats. Um, like, I don't think you you don't want to start with troop movements in the Donbass. You want you, you want to start with, like, why is it in Americans interest to impose sanctions on Vladimir Putin that could force Americans to pay higher energy prices? Right. That's what people are wondering. And so at some point, you've got to talk about the global struggle between autocracy and democracy, which Joe Biden has done many times in his presidency, even in the campaign, like there has to be a reason that people can grab onto why we're doing this, because what he did today is just start being like, well, Putin's carving up Ukraine and he's doing this and next he wants to do this. And you can imagine if you're a average voter and you're struggling with inflation and struggling with gas prices and struggling with costs and, you know, in a funk because of the pandemic, you're like, well, what is he doing paying attention to that for? Now, I think there's a good answer that he can give, but you got to work at giving it and you got to speak give in a way it, right. that's, you've got to give it and then you've got to be accessible to people. Right? And, and you've also got to break it down in some human terms. I mean, yes. Arthur Finkelstein, the, the kind of great outlaw Republican pollster used to say, most Americans think an Afghan's a cat. And if they went to college, <laughs> they think it's a blanket. Um, it, there's, there's no law in politics against telling people that three days ago, Putin's goons shelled a kindergarten. Luckily yeah. the kids all got to the basement in time and could have wiped out 40 kids. So there are real innocent people caught here whose lives are going to be destroyed under Russian gunfire. And we got to take this thing seriously. And we are the good guys. NATO is a good guy alliance. And we're lined up and we're ready to handle everything. Because the other problem Biden has is cable news has a 
unstoppable addiction to making every story a Hindenburg crisis. So the sirens are going off. We have the, will this be World War Three? you know, and because and, and, they love the escalation, the specter of, you know, the end of the world, when this is really more of a containment isolation thing. Uh, and the president has a rare perch and ability to kind of explain the stakes, explain the plan, calm the country, uh, and make it clear who the good and bad guys are here, which they, will they create pain for Putin, which is good. They also have an expectations challenge, too, though, on this, because, like, so they impose sanctions, they impose really tough sanctions. Then what's the what's the end game here? Uh, he, the Biden said they're not going to we're not going to send U.S. forces in no matter what. So he's ruled that out. So, you know, one argument against a primetime address is, do you want to make front and center a challenge that ultimately you may come up short <laughs> in overcoming because Putin has already decided he doesn't give it. He doesn't care that much about sanctions. He's right. going to keep doing it anyway. He said during his speech yesterday, oh, they were going to impose those sanctions no matter what I did. And so if that's the case and he just keeps going and, you know, he goes all the way to Kiev and we've imposed the sanctions already, then what do you do if you're the Biden administration? What do you have left? Well, I think that augurs, though, to, to the point that we've all made is to explain what success looks like. Because the one thing you got to yeah. do for the one thing, the best, <laughs> the best thing to do for cable news is say, we're going from point A to point B and here's what point B looks like. Because they get that. And then when you get to point B, you can say, as I told you where we'd be at point B. I mean, I do think there's, I think laying this out is important. I think what this means for the American people, what they're likely to see. And then ultimately, I think there's a there's a real um, opportunity. There's a lot of downside here, as we've just talked about. But a, a real opportunity to have a bit of a narrative reset, right? You look strong. You look in command. Um, this is the foreign policy guy that we thought about during the election. This is, you know, we, we scrub a little bit about what happened in Afghanistan. I think there's a, I just think there's a lot more that they're capable of doing and can and should take advantage of. And I think your point about sort of separating this from the state of the union is a really, really important. Yeah, it also could set up the State of the Union well. Biden's big political problem is a perception of weakness. He's become the doddering old guy on the sidelines getting shoved around by AOC and a bunch of House progressives, which is just bad, bad mojo for the Democratic Party in a political context. So if if he gets up there and does Master of the Universe, and yeah, I agree, they've got to prepare for a bad outcome in the Ukraine, but they can paint that picture. One, we and NATO are plussing up forces to surround it so they're not going anywhere else. Two, it'll be a quagmire and a humanitarian disaster, which is purely on Putin. And three, we're going to crush the Russian economy. I mean, we have the ability through our intellectual property to basically cut off microchips. We did it to Huawei and broke them in China. We broke their equivalent of Sony. Uh, so, you know, we the Uncle Sam has a lot up the sleeve, but he has to explain all that. Because when you just hear sanctions, that's political cliche language, no teeth, what does it mean? Well, this means if you're a thug buddy of Putin's, that $100 million you stashed in Switzerland when you ripped off an aluminum mine uh, ain't yours to get no more. So if, if, if he can put it on plain language and, and paint a picture of a surrounded quagmire where we're going to be the good humanitarians, and frankly, the thing he doesn't have to say is there are a lot of people in our national security world who have been for decades on the other ends of an insurgency where they're taking old artillery shells and making them into ieds you know there's there's th this thing can be painful for russia you know russia scholars will say that when you look when you take apart the fall of the of the soviet government in russia the casualties from the long war in afghanistan much like our vietnam was a factor and uh and and i think this thing could be harder for the russians than they think and I don't know. I, I think Biden can paint a picture of a real strategic plan that'll strengthen him and elevate him a little rather than what he's been, which is the guy who's losing domestic policy battles every month. I'd go in big. Plain language is important, like Murphy said. I also think active language is important. There, Too often in the last several months, and this is the case with Afghanistan as well, 
he's Biden can act like a narrator of world events as opposed to a shaper of world events. Absolutely. And if you're going to impose sanctions, that's a pretty tough action. And you should lead with that and talk about what you're doing. As like, So much of this has been, and I realize they had to declassify all the intelligence to let people know what Putin was planning. But you can't just be like, see, we called it. He, uh, we, we said that he would do this, and then he did it. So uh, we right. win points for calling it. Like you got to actually act, and you got to shape, shape and, and explain plain language what sanctions are and what that means, uh, and how it's real pain. And we know two certainties about this, right? This is going to take a huge amount of the president's time, the White House's time, the National Security Council's time, the Secretary of State's time. There's a there's a time suck that that this is going to take, right? The other thing is we know that as long as tanks are rolling and and whatnot, we're going to have pictures and the cable news and, and a lot of the news will be animated by this. So I, I don't know that he's got a lot of choice. And I think, you know, getting into a cadence and a mindset of that active plain language that you talked about, John, understanding kind of and and walking the American people through what success can look like here means somebody else isn't doing it. So speaking of time sucks in the White House, artful transition alert here. Segways. Let's <laughs> talk about. One. I like that. Let's talk about the State of the Union. Um, I think, Brother Gibbs, you got out your uh, your scissors and we're in the Hacks on Temp audio room splicing some material together, right? Jeff Fox and I were, um, you know, with the scotch tape and the uh, the old reel to reels Murphy that we borrowed from uh, from your studio there. And we put this together, and John, I want to set uh, this up because I think as you listen to this clip, I think they must give each director of presidential speechwriting like you a, a computer with a template of the State of the Union that requires you to use this sentence. My fellow Americans, I stand before you tonight to report that the State of our Union is strong. With more Americans going back to work, with our nation an active force for good in the world, the state of our union is confident and strong. The state of our union is getting stronger. And we've come too far to turn back now. As long as I'm president, I will work with anyone in this chamber to build on this momentum. But I intend to fight obstruction with action, and I will oppose any effort to return to the very same policies that brought on this economic crisis in the first place. Our pride is restored. And for all of these reasons, I say to the people of our great country and to the members of Congress, the state of our union is stronger than ever before. Now, Gibbs, I got to give you some crap for adroitly slipping in an hour and a half of Obama rhetoric in there. <laughs> I was going to say, that was a Maybe long Maybe we excerpt. add a little bit of, yeah, you know, yeah, still on the payroll. Of, you know, I had to, we had to tip the scales a little bit. Oh, my um, God. So, John, let me, let, let me, let's get this out of the way. Maybe all three of us can answer this. Fill in the blank for us, John. The state of our union is... Uh, I, I I assume fucked is not an option here. <laughs> could be. It, it could be. So, no, I, here's the thing. I'm not trying to, to dodge the question, but Gibbs, you probably know this from my time in the White House. I hate this formulation. I tried so hard to get this out of the speech forever. I think it is trite. It is cliche. Like, I just, I don't like it. I mean, I think in our first State of the Union in 2010, we did... Despite our hardships, our union is strong. We didn't do state of. Uh, the one that you just played, I think, was from 2012. He Correct. said getting stronger there. I think Biden could do getting stronger. You could do resilient is one uh, if you want to get away from strong. I don't think you can just do strong <laughs> here here in, here in year three of the pandemic with uh, inflation. And, yeah, yeah, no, I hear you guys. Contrarian pitch because of Ukraine. I would say standing strong and leading the free world tonight. Oh, that's a good one. I dodged the domestic stuff that way and then wind around. That's a good one. I, I had tested but resilient. Tested but resilient. Yeah, you could. Yeah. So let me. I, I tweeted this out a little earlier. I got some some popular ones: resilient, healing, stressed, recovering, troubled, fragile, and then my favorite: 
kind of a shit show, but it would be worse if Trump won. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, well, there's the honest answers about the state of our union, and right. then there are the answers that you can give in a speech if you're the president of the United States. And the reason I set this up, John, and, and I want you to talk a little bit about just the thematics of where, where you see Biden needing to go, and then we'll get into the construct of kind of how. But it, it seems to me that I think, and we, you know, Axelrod's written about this, and we've talked a bit about it, but you know, the right track, wrong track number is actually worse a year later uh, or, or as it was a year ago. And so the reason I set this question up is I don't think he can walk in there, maybe minus Murphy's kind of um, uh, well-executed strong reference, and say it's strong because I just think people will tune a lot of it out. What, where do you see the thematics of this? If you were sitting at that at that computer, where would you guide this? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that I rejected the premise of your question is I wasn't just trying to be difficult, but I, I do think it's a larger issue with this debate about, you know, do, does he go up there and basically give the hour-long speech equivalent of the hashtag Biden boom? Uh, or does he, you know, do what Axe suggests and suggested when we were in the White House as well, which is really feel people's pain and struggles right now? And my problem is like, I don't think I think that either that both of those can be a trap. Like, I think if there's this uh, it's actually a Roger Ailes quote, which is be the thermostat, not the thermometer. And I think about what that with the president a lot. Right. Which is his job is not to tell us to narrate what's happening in the country right now and to tell us how good it is, because that's sort of useless at the end of the day. His job is to change it. And I think that the entire speech has to be about, yes, mm. talk about the struggles we've been through, talk about the the public health crisis, the political crisis, the economic crisis, foreign policy crises we're in, and then talk about what you are doing to fix those crises and what is standing in your way and how hard you're going to fight to overcome those obstacles. And then you're not caught between in the seesaw between are things great, are things bad, are things somewhere in between. Like You don't need to be the narrator of how things are going. You're the person they put in charge to change them. And that's the kind of language that you need in a state of the union. I did not have on my bingo card you quoting Roger Ailes, but I, I don't know, Murphy, I, did you? <laughs> if you did, you, you can color that square in. I did not. <laughs> okay, gentlemen, we will be back in a minute, but we have to pay a few bills. Today's episode is sponsored by Honey. You know, we all shop online and we've all seen, not only seen, we've been mocked by that promo code field. You know, you're checking out and you don't have a code and you think there's a club where they all have the codes and they're paying less and you're a loser. It can ruin an internet shopping experience. Well, now there's Honey, the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes so you're in on the club and applies the very best one it finds to your cart. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online. And look, imagine you're shopping at one of your favorite internet sites there, Murphy. You dialed up on your AOL and uh, you, when you check out, the Honey button drops down and all you have to do is click apply coupons. Wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons it can find for that site. If Honey finds a working coupon, You'll watch the prices drop. Yeah, I was playing around with this thing, and you know, I'm a tech gadget freak, and I tried it, and indeed, I saved a few bucks. And you know, I'm not the only one. Honey has found its over 17 million members over $2 billion in discounts and savings. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. I don't use the phrase straight up a lot, but I just did in that. It's literally free and installs in only a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid, I don't always say that, and supporting this podcast. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash hacks. That's joinhoney.com slash hacks. What every president wants to do, what every incumbent politician wants to do is listen up. Here's all the stuff I've done for you, idiots. Love me. And that's totally, that's what Axe's op-ed got at. That's the wrong tone. But Biden yeah. clearly wants to scratch that itch. If we only get our message out about our tremendous accomplishments, everything will change. And then you're telling people that, you know, chocolate ice cream tastes like horseshit. And they just don't believe it. And you're another <laughs> politician. And it's over. 
I do think the Ukraine situation gives him something to claim strength on, uh, where America's doing the right thing, leading the world, and then pivot. We're also addressing our, or facing our challenges at home. And then a lot of active verbs about moving forward rather than, you know, run the basis of all the wonderful things that nobody believes. So I, I think Ukraine gives them a bit of a, uh, a bit of a way to claim something strong and pivot. If he didn't have the Ukraine, you're right. It's going to be some horrible speech writing room if everybody's saying, uh, recovering, vaccinated, and hopeful. No, <laughs> you know, going through the 101 terrible pitches. Uh, so I, I think they might have a way to dodge it through. We'll see what they do. I do worry in this White House that and you guys know Biden better than I do, but I, I think he bucks a lot and wants to go out and tell him things. And you see that in the communication where he, I'll, I'll go out and tell him what's it. And so I don't know if the, the staff can drive this thing adroitly and we might get the accomplishments hour, which would politically be pretty bad for him. Well, I think, as you said, and, and you saw this in his um, year anniversary press conference, there, there's, there's this, you're standing in front of the people you think are grading you, in this case, the reporters, uh, and you're like, if I can just get them to understand this chart right here, they'll understand the economy so much better and everyone, and to your point, then there's like, you're trying to tell people they feel good when they don't feel good. Um, and I think that's hard because it, it, we dealt with this some, even with Obama, right? You, you, you know, well, let me, let's take a step back here and let's talk about what got us into this problem. And then like eight minutes later, we're sort of back to the, the text of the speech. But I, I do think there's, I do think you have to resist that. And I think, you know, you, this has to be something that people, I don't think there's going to be some magical 12 second quote that we're, we, we remember and say, 20 years from now. But I do think, you know, to both of your points, this has to be really an operational plan and document for how you're going to press onward in the next year to year or two years, right? It's got to be an animating document and an animating plan for how you see progress and what you're going to do, to your point, John, to make that happen. It has to be strong and bold and a bit visionary and you've got to as obama did in that elongated quote murphy that you caught me on which is you know like here's what i'm going to fight against if somebody stands in my way to that sort of progress i think the most important thing he can do is start by meeting people where they are and as you know gibbs i'm not a big fan of like reciting every single problem that the country is facing and how we got there, even though our boss liked to do that once in a while. Um, but I do think to Axe's point, like, what are people feeling right now about the country, about their own lives, about where things are? Meet them there and then take them somewhere else. But it, right. but you got to start where people are. That I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with you, Murph, that Ukraine gives you a little bit of a, a bigger uh, sort of backdrop here to talk about. But I do wonder if it, I, I don't know if I'd start the speech that way. I would start the speech with what we've all been through together these last couple of years, uh, the pandemic and everything that has come from that, uh, and, and then go from there. Yeah, no, you could have a big wind up. And the one thing I think you can get away with on the pandemic is you say, we now know how to fight it and knock it back. You know, we, we, we have, we know things we didn't know, we're doing it. And then, you know, we have a bunch of healthcare workers stand up and we take, we take a little emotional lap on that, you know, joint suffering, empathy. And then he needs to take this train wreck, build back better and turn it into a couple of bumper stickers. You can fight a midterm election on, you know, and, and go yeah. out and say, I'm, I've got 74 days till Congress goes back to ask you to vote for him. And I'll be damned if we're not going to, you know, I'm not going to hammer every day. I, I think it's a little bit of a fighting speech on domestic policy. Because uh, he he wants to find himself in the do nothing Republican Congress mm -hmm. mode, I think give him something to attack other than his own shortcomings, which the Republicans will do plenty to attack. So it ought to be a real real election year, give him hell Harry thing. I think after he's done squaring up uh, the big stuff. Well, I know he's not. This isn't a presidential election year, but one of the reasons I picked the the eight different or, or I guess six different opportunities to have a tape of Barack Obama saying that the state of our union was strong. You lost that war, John, uh, or, or that battle. But um, 
but I, you know, that, that's that is as John said the 2012 speech where he says it's getting stronger, which is meeting people where they were because they didn't feel like it had fully recovered. But then he sort of that's there's a call to arms in that, and I think to your point, Murphy, it's got to be something. We may not remember a quote, but we got to think. Okay, there's a plan, and he's going to fight like hell for it, and and fighting like hell for it's going to help me. Well, yeah, but not only a plan. There, here, here are three lollipops. You understand? Wouldn't you like to get those? I'm going to fight like hell for them. Then election day, you decide how well the other guys have done. Um, but let's let's pivot again, serial pivoter here, pivotitis, uh, and get into the sausage grinding. I heard the magic phrase from John Early: interagency process. Because I think a lot of civilians, God bless them, who aren't in this Kafka-esque funhouse mere world we've all been on, think, well, he's probably got a bunch of guys with suspenders, men and women with pencils in their ears in a room. Hey, I got it. I got it. Build back better. What do you think, Sid? <laughs> you know, like they're like they're they're writing a Tin Pan Alley song or something. And there's a piano in the corner, Rosemary, Maury Amsterdam's there. I'm doing a very old pole there just for you gipsy but so we actually had a foghorn leghorn reference in the newsletter today and just because we love obscurity i couldn't resist foghorn leghorn what i say what that's a you know what was the other the other big money line was it's a joke son they actually stole that from an old radio comic a guy named kenny delmar and there's a link on hexontap.bulletin.com subscribe my point last me like five you, minutes ago yeah <laughs> Can you, can you, well said, can you walk us through how it actually works to create this big monster with a thousand authors and in the end, hopefully, you know, one or two and a president of, of how this big, because it's a governing document. Everybody in the machine who doesn't really know what the boss wants reads it over at the Department of Weights and Measures and is supposed to have some idea what we're for. Walk us through the creation of a State of the Union address. So I'll tell you what we used to do. We we would start with a meeting uh, around Thanksgiving uh, with the president, and it would be Axe and Gibbs and a few other people. Oh, you're doomed and, already. But yeah, I know. I know. That's where it goes south from there. Um, and we would start by saying some version of all of these State of the Unions are just laundry lists of policies that go on forever that don't fit with how Americans consume information in this day and age. And instead of a long laundry list that lasts an hour, wouldn't it be nice if we could have a speech that just told a story for like 20 minutes and that was it. And we'd all ah, Barack Obama loved that idea and we all loved that idea. And then inevitably we would end up uh, sometime late January with a speech that uh, was a laundry list of policies that lasted an hour. Right. <laughs> so so what happens? What happens is every single person in the federal government wants to get their program or policy or accomplishment included in the State of the Union. And so after that first meeting where you have these big dreams about uh, uh, an inspirational speech that's shorter, you then have a, a series of meetings with the various policy councils in the White House who get input from all the different cabinet agencies. And there is a set of policies that everyone decides the president should mention in the State of the Union. And, um, you know, we then go to the president and get sort of get his thoughts on potential themes for the State of the Union, political message, all that kind of stuff. And then I would say over Christmas break, uh, it wouldn't really be much of a break for me and the speechwriters. We would do a draft. <laughs> uh, we would have the first draft done by, again, around somewhere during Christmas break. We would usually send it to the president when he was in Hawaii and he would not look at the first draft because he was in Hawaii on vacation. Uh, and so it would usually be a sprint between early January and when the State of the Union was, which was late January, early February. And that would involve, again, like once we had a draft of the speech, it would go out to almost every agency in the federal government for right. review and they would send in edits. And and my job as a speechwriter would be trying to keep as much extra clutter out of the speech and keep it moving so that at least we could get it around the hour mark. Usually we try to go under the hour. And then, you know, at the end, the president would start making his edits and he would practice the speech maybe once or twice before uh, before he delivered it, and that would be that. But it's a it's a beast of a process. It's the least fun speech to write. 
you get to the point where everybody hates you because there are literally 12 people at the Fish and Wildlife Department who are dying to get money to protect the speckled walleye for the first time ever with green friendly, you know, and, and the high tech internet based enforcement and a hundred of those. It's funny you should mention that the Fish and Wildlife Department, because we had we had a joke about salmon in the first state of the union about uh, we were trying we, we were doing a, a, a very Republican thing, Murph. We were trying to say that we should get rid of regulations we don't need. And there was one regulation where, you know, the Commerce Department and the Interior Department were both in charge of salmon and one was in freshwater and one was in seawater. And so we we made this joke about salmon and how we need to sort of get rid of that regulation. And we got it through the whole process. And right before the speech, I get this call from Gary Locke, who was our uh, Commerce Secretary at the time, just so angry that we had screwed this up and that we're going to take salmon away from his department and how could you take away our it was just no it's yes minister it took us 26 years to get saltwater salmon damn it and he's got 50 career people screaming at him because the biggest thing in their lives was taking that away from interior or whatever in 79 i do remember john at at one point i don't remember if it was in the campaign or in the white house but you you would send out drafts just for even an address like the president would biden did today um you know, with, with an email distribution list. And I remember at one point saying to you, like, you don't have to take all these morons edits. Like, you don't have to. Like, just because they can email you and say, like, take that sentence out and add this seven sentences to. Because I always, I, I think I always told you, John, that if you go back and look particularly at Barack Obama, the, his history, like his best speeches are 17 to 22 minutes. Right. They're just not that long. And I used to joke that whenever he had a 45-minute speech, it was because we started with a 22-and-a-half-minute speech, and everyone wanted to add, but nobody wanted to take away, and therefore he ended up with a 45-minute speech, which, you know. Well, that's why I ultimately instituted the uh, the PAYGO rule like they have in Congress. <laughs> and I would say to everyone, I said, if you, if you add something to the speech, if you add words to the speech, you have to find the words to take out of the speech because we are not adding. So you tell me what you want to take out. It's PAYGO now. Salmon. We want to take out salmon. <laughs> God bless them. They all think they want to mention it for two reasons. One, they think it really helps because they've been in the middle of it forever. And no, the salmon people always complain that White House doesn't care times a thousand. And then they want to make sure those bastards over at Interior here that they're keeping, you know. So it's the turf wars, which are it, when the president says it, it is now reality and, and things can change. What do you think the Biden, I mean, you guys probably know some of the people, I don't know how the Biden speech writing shop works. Same process, different process. I mean, the interagency thing never changes, but is there any signature Biden-esque speech writing output that we should expect at State of the Union? Or will it sound like the earlier Biden stuff, which I think has been not horrible, but pretty pedestrian, no real there's no real Biden signature to it that I've heard yet, other than theoretically empathy, but he does that more off the cuff. Has there been a wonderfully written Biden speech since he's been president about empathy? I don't think so, but I don't listen to everything they do. I still think that his inaugural address was uh, both, it hit the empathy note, but it also hit the sort of larger themes about democracy, you know, reaching for the reaching for the stars kind of uh, rhetoric that you want in an inaugural um, he's got a pretty, I think the advantage he has is he's got a pretty tight speech writing messaging shop, right? He's got Mike Donilon with him who has known him forever and worked with him forever. And, and knows so, his voice, knows what he And knows do. his voice and Mike can write so he gets that. And then Vinay Reddy is his uh, chief speechwriter, uh, who has been with him for a long time too. So he's got at least two people who really know his voice. And, uh, and then I think they have like, John Meacham step in once in a while on some of the big speeches. He does all the Lincoln jokes and the time Garfield couldn't find the map room. <laughs> That's exactly right. Punches it up for the kids with the modern references. I kid you, John. I kid you. Buy his books. Uh, <laughs> but I do think, so I think he has that advantage because I think what you don't want is you don't want a speech by committee, right? And and State of the Unions by design are, are already speech by committees and you already have too many cooks in the kitchen. So if you have a couple of people who know your voice, that usually helps. But I do think to your point about empathy, he needs to be a little more, uh, he needs to really bring that to this to this speech more than anything else and, and connect with people. And again, like, and I know Axis said this a bunch too, but this is a country that's been through a collective trauma over the last two years, and that has manifested itself 
in health, you know, mental health issues and and inflation and kids, uh, you know, losing time in school and all that kind of stuff. And he he is one of the best people to be able to talk about that because he he knows grief and he knows trauma and he can talk people through that. And I would you know, I would I would really think about that as I was writing the speech and try to get moments in the speech between all the no one's going to remember all the policy in the speech. No one's going to remember the list of accomplishments. They're going to remember moments where Joe Biden seemed like a human and, and, and told the country that he understands what they're going through. So do you make anything of the fact that this is later than a traditional State of the Union? I mean, I, I was um, March 1st is there's never been one this late. And to your point, the Thanksgiving meeting and the, the Christmas drafts, um, you know, are shifted six weeks or three weeks at least for them. So do you make anything that did they want to get past Omicron? That's what I got. I thought it was um, I thought it was they have they don't want to give a speech in the middle of a surge. First of all, you want an audience, which now they have. They, originally, there was some talk that only like 25 members would get to go. I think that would have been bad. Uh, so now they get to have all members of Congress there and you have your traditional applause. I think, look, Biden was elected in part on a return to normalcy, right? That was the promise. And I do think that the pivot on the, to talk about another pivot, the pivot on the pandemic here is going to be really important. And I don't think you need to say like, I don't think he can say, oh, the pandemic's over. Don't worry about the pandemic and all that. But I do think there needs to be, he needs to turn the page on this. Um, and, and, and I think Murph, you said this, like we now have all the tools we need to fight this. We have the tools that we need to live our lives enjoy right. things that we haven't enjoyed in the last couple of years. And that's thanks to the hard work of healthcare workers and right. the scientists who came up with the, the vaccine and even the Trump administration, you know, like give everyone credit, yeah, including totally. the American people for all of this. We have and tools say, and confidence now and we are Americans. So, yeah. it, you know, it's going to be part of our lives forever, but it's not going to run our lives anymore. And that's the turn. I think there needs to be a memorial beat in this too. And, and this is the kind of thing that gets thrown out in the meeting because nobody's ever done it before. It's crazy. I've been thrown out of a lot of meetings, but has anybody <laughs> ever done the empty chair in the gallery to remind us all the healthcare mm. workers who have died from COVID moment oh, of silence? One. Yeah. You know, they're, they're going to need something like that. I think to register the pain and all those people those frontline, let alone the relatives and friends we all lost, but the physicians and nurses and EMT people, um, they ought to do something dramatic to honor them. They did that so beautifully during the inaugural weekend. They yeah, had a couple true. of events like that, and they had all the little white flags on the uh, on the you know National Mall. And they, you're right, they should do something like that. At the State of the Union. And, and the challenge in that is you'd have to you'd probably have to open the speech with something like that, right? Because the last thing you 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 probably want to do is halfway through the speech have everybody practice being silent for a minute. Um, right. Cause then the, then the room's going to go down and you're going to have to bring the room back up. And I'm not sure Biden is a, is, is all that adept at bringing the room up. So you could do it at the end of the speech too. You That's could. the other option. Yeah, you could. And then you got to be ready for Marjorie Taylor green to heckle you with QAnon rhymes and all that. Cause he might, there could be some real bad behavior this time. There, there are some barbarians on the loose. Now I would have the secret service immediately, uh, taser them but that's me <laughs> would provide fabulously good tv oh i think so yeah yeah all right hold that thought we're going to take a short break and now a word from our sponsors murphy green chef is the most sustainable meal kit out there you can enjoy your greens while being green. Green Chef is the most sustainable meal kit, offsetting 100% of their plastic packaging in every box and 100% of their carbon footprint and emissions because Green Chef's pre-portioned ingredients mean you'll actually reduce your food waste by at least 25% compared to grocery shopping. So if you want to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk, Green Chef's for you. Well, that's for do-gooders like you, Gibbs. What I want is good-tasting food, and Green Chef is delicious. That makes it a lot easier. With fresh produce, premium proteins, and organic ingredients, you can trust Green Chef. It's the number one meal kit for eating well, with 35 nutritious and flavorful options to choose from every week, featuring premium, clean ingredients that are seasonally sourced for peak freshness. You get the variety, you get easy-to-follow recipes, and there's something new to discover each week, so you never get bored. Murphy, it's sustainable, it's delicious, it's convenient, it's easy, it covers all of your specialty diets. What 
more could you want? Now, if I'm keto or paleo, does Green Chef cover me? We got you covered, no doubt. Okay, well then let's get green, get good, and get delicious. Go to greenchef.com slash hacks on tap 130, greenchef.com slash hacks on tap 130, and use code hacks on tap 130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. So remember that magic $130 off, which is why it's greenchef.com slash hacks on tap 130. Go to greenchef.com slash hacks on tap 130. Use code hacks on tap 130 to get how much Murphy? $130, Robert. To get $130 off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Any other tips or thoughts about what Biden could do? He needs something. I mean, these polling data is so, it's, it keeps getting worse, too. I mean, he's, the keel is now on the rocks. 50-50 in California, the bluest state ever. You know, that is, that's a real problem. Well, I think he needs to give something that Democrats get, get excited about because the, this, the long slog of the election season is, is coming up. And to your point, Murphy, if he's, if he's at break even in California, that means there's a whole bunch of those people listening to that speech who may not fully understand they're in a race for their jobs in a big way. So if you got 58% in the last election, you're probably in a tough race this time. And, and I, I you know, he's got to get the party excited. Now he'll have a Supreme court nominee, presumably by then they're supposed to pick that the, the deadline is the day before the state of the union. There's some elements in this that I think will be important. Let's play SCOTUS politics for a minute. Do you think it'll, I, if I were there, which I'll never be, but I would say for God's sake, you've already got Lindsey Graham endorsing Jackson. Bunt the, you know, bunt the single to get the third base around and score. No need to take risk and let the Republicans have three weeks of defund the police because somebody wrote a Berkeley Law Review article 30 years ago. You got a vetted, safe, competent, easy win for for god's sake do it and de-risk this thing or do you think they're having meetings and thinking back in their fdr mode from the beginning and they got to swing for the fences again i i don't even think that going with katanji brown jackson is even like a safe safe compromise move like that's a that's a wonderful justice who's progressive and should excite the base too yeah Yeah, easy win. i would go with i would go with her for sure and you've got the Republican chairman's endorsed her. That t- even if the Cruz and the others want to try to score future primary points, hard when the chairman of the committee, who's a firebrand on this issue, is already on board. You know, it just puts a cap on it all. I agree with you. Something that I, I think this can be a really good pick without it feeling like a safe pick. But I would also say to Democrats, as I've said before, we don't throw out all the the past votes. Right? This isn't about getting seventy or sixty-five or sixty-one. It doesn't matter. You get on the Supreme Court, you're there until you decide you want to leave, right? Or God takes you. So I, I wouldn't, I don't think we have to think through like, oh, what would like, let's send a message. So I, I think this is really, and, and it'll be interesting because again, this is a maybe a slightly different section of the White House that's that's not in the Situation Room working on Ukraine and Russia every day, but has is, is got to make the Supreme Court train run on time and has got to make the State of the Union train run on time um, because that's all about the walking and chewing gum of, of any White House. Even though there's a time suck around Ukraine and Russia, you've still got a lot of other stuff, a lot of other business that really has to happen. Does he do a callback to the big infrastructure win, which has been totally forgotten because it got crowded out? And does he try it again with the Electoral Count Act or something like that? I think he should use the infrastructure bill as a, a a way to say, hey, look, I got, you know, Republicans decided to come along on this. We all work together. We got something done for the American people. I, we even got Mitch McConnell on board, right? There's a number of other provisions, policies I have that would make a huge difference in people's lives that are supported by Democrats, independents, and Republicans all across the country that have been supported by some Republicans in here in the past send me these bills, send them to my desk. I'll sign them today. People are tired of obstruction. Yeah. They, they're tired of us not doing anything to improve their lives. 
I want to get this done. Send me a bill. I, I think a lot of action like that and, and yep. uh, is, is going to really help him. Well, to your point, John, and as we get out of this, I mean, I think it is you can either be, as you said, the narrator, the scorekeeper, or you can be the guy driving the action. And I think it, it, we will understand, even if we don't remember a line, we'll understand at the end of this speech the role, which of these did he slip into? Um, and I think that will 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 understand a little bit more where he's headed and and what his prospects are once we figure out which lane he occupies in terms of this speech. If people walk away from this speech thinking to themselves, that's the guy from Scranton who gets my life and is going to fight like hell to make it better, that's it. That's the win. You don't need them to think of anything else walking right. away from the speech or remember anything else. That's just the feeling they need. Yeah, look, I agree. If they're clear contrast and you win motive, you're in good good shape. Though Putin being a sneaky bastard will probably bomb Kiev an hour after the speech to wipe it off the front pages. But uh, So why don't we pivot to the Republicans for a minute before we get to uh, mailbag and other fun stuff. Uh, I'll let you guys start. <laughs> yeah, where do you want to start, Murphy? We can, I will say this. I mean, if you, if you go through one of the things that we probably haven't covered a lot, is um, or hasn't gotten as a, a, a lot of the type of publicity it might have gotten if Ukraine wasn't on the front pages. But Donald Trump's had a pretty bad ten days, right? Oh, an whether awful it is, ten days. Whether it is uh, you know the Supreme Court not getting involved in the National Archives stuff. By the way, boxes of National Archives stuff hanging out at Mar-a-Lago with classified information. Uh, needing to sit for a deposition uh, with the attorney general of New York. And then, you know, maybe the, I still love this one. The Basically his accountant saying, Hey, we can't stand by anything we told you for the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. So, I mean, all of those things together, it, it I mean, one, it would swamp a normal po- politician. They would be, they'd be laughed out, but you know, it, but I do think there's, they have the potential to, begin to unleash some sizable cuts and and some bleeding for Donald Trump in a way that I don't think he's seen in a while. Yeah, we finally got him. This is it. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's like Rasputin to stay with our Russia theme here. Uh, Democrats are so traumatized. It's just like, well, he can't be killed. You know, Um, I actually think the legal stuff is unforgiving. Uh, you can't bullshit your way out of it. And those nooses are tightening on him. And that is a big problem for like his life and his balance sheet and all that. The question is, his grip on the Republican Party? Will that move numbers? We are in a Trump 2.0 phase. Well, I guess you'd say 3.0. First phase was when he announced and there was eye rolling. Then he became president and there was almighty allegiance and terror on the D side. The unkillable holy man is a uh, wicked you know holy man is now in charge now when, when the republican data there's a plurality of republicans saying don't say anything bad about him sure better than biden and those liberals but maybe we need somebody else next time you know there's a certain staleness to it that doesn't mean he can't get nominated again but there's kind of a trump fatigue from the republican party part of it exhaustion and part of it the more cynical calculation that some of the polls are making which is, look, I was a hostage, but the guy could win elections. You know, they're still mesmerized by 2016. Most of the time, he cost us elections. And now they're seeing bad Trump, ineffective Trump. Where, where is he? Where's weakness? Where's inflation? Where's stuff that works? He just wants to bitch and moan about the last election. And so the faith in the, the, his evil ability to move the ball forward politically with, quote, his voters and all that, that's fading quick. Um, and we're see, I think the legal stuff compounds that. I think the question is, there's definitely some exhaustion on the Republican side, but is it permanent or is it, he's just, he's sort of out of sight, out of mind right now. He's not like, cause he's not on Twitter, right? He's not in our faces all the time. And I just wonder, look, if, if the legal stuff comes to fruition and he is indicted or something ha- like that, that's going to obviously have a big effect on, on 2024. But legal stuff aside, just in terms of public opinion on the Republican side, um, if he if he runs again, if he decides he's going to run again and there's a primary or there's a, you know, a couple people try to run against him and he's doing what Republican voters love that he does, which is beat up on other people. At least his base loves that. 
and he's back to, you know, throwing elbows at Ron DeSantis and whoever else runs against him, then does he, you know, does he, he does he gain a little more love back? Um, that's what I can't tell. And does a Republican midterm victory give him a shot of new blood? So this is the debate we have, John, on this. Literally, Murphy and I argue about this, uh, both in the newsletter and on here. Um, because my theory of the case is, and I think there's certainly longer term legal trouble. My guess is in the short term, he's going to use polarization and say, you know, these people are evil. They're just out to get me and his base is going to, they'll respond and believe that. But my theory of the case is that I don't see Trump fading, uh, at least right now. I know, I know the, the, the polling is, you know, the, the NBC poll around, um, you know, more allegiance to the party than to Trump. Um, my theory on that is the 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 party is Trump, so they're they're indistinguishable. But the debate we have is you know, Murphy thinks Murphy thinks there's the slow inevitable decline to to zero. I, I tend to believe if I, I I don't I don't see at this point anything that to me again short of being in jail, but augurs for something that's that's fatal. Where, where, where are you on uh, on? Let me just interrupt. I, I'm not saying zero. I'm saying the point where he's vulnerable in a primary, where he's faded in strength and the, the, a DeSantis or something, I'll be able to get him. And finally, where he's faded enough and distracted enough, he may choose not to run. I just think he's weaker now. Weak enough, it's all about the slope of the decline. And if Biden is still in a crisis and people think Kamala Harris is going to be the nominee, the Republicans are going to get very cocky and they may think there is no risk in nominating Trump. But anyway, to your point, I think he's fading quicker than you do, I think. It's yeah. a fair way to sum it. I have been firmly where Gibbs is since the uh, end of the 2020 election. It's the correct answer, Favreau. Don't, don't change it. You just land on the correct answer. And- the data in the last several weeks, plus the legal trouble, is the first time I started thinking that maybe uh, Murphy's right on this one. I still am where Gibbs is. But you can you can maybe start to see a path where he fades. I just think again, every time I go down that path, I think no, no, no. Once there's a primary, one, because to beat to right. beat Trump, you have to go after Trump, right? Like I, I I do disagree that he's. I think he's gonna run. Like I I can't imagine a scenario where he decides that he's just gonna step back unless he's unless he's dead or in jail. Yeah, I can't imagine. Points. Right, I can't imagine him stepping back and saying I'm gonna take a pass on this. Because he's such a narcissist that he doesn't want to be remembered as just the guy who lost to Joe Biden and then he dies and that's that. Like he 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 yeah. he's addicted to this. So I think he's going to run. And then if he runs, like to beat Trump, you have to throw a punch at Trump. And I have not seen any Republican ever figure out how to successfully attack Trump. And they've all screwed themselves because they all embrace the big lie, except for like Chris Christie and a couple others. And if you embrace the big lie, then basically you're saying Trump was robbed last time. So then why are you running against him this time? We will see. I remain <laughs> the uh, the oracle here. And uh, <laughs> I hope you're right. I really hope yeah. you're right. Better for the, I, the problem is God knows what we're creating the vacuum. Uh, All yeah. right. Now, speaking of oracles, it's time for you, our listeners, to grab the oracle with... It's listener and for some plugs, uh, I'm telling you, the three of us all follow the talk out of Paris and Milan in the fashion world. And the Hacks on Tap t-shirt, let's just say there are unfortunate supermodel feuds breaking out over the limited supply. You can go to HacksOnTap.com. And we don't make any real money from this, by the way. We just do it because uh, a friend of mine just texted me, saw uh, an astute uh, international uh Man of Leisure wearing one of our T-shirts down in Mexico. So we're going global here. You can get one. We also have coffee mugs, beer mugs, uh, all kinds of stuff. Just go to HacksOnTap.com, click the little store merch button, and uh, our elves will ship it to you. The beer mugs in particular are pretty cool. Second, if you have a mailbag question, Gibbs, what would you do? What's the magic uh, email? I always mess this up. It's HacksOnTap at gmail.com. So if you've got a question and you want somebody world famous like John Favreau to potentially answer it, <laughs> hacks on tap at gmail.com. 
And finally, if you want more of this stuff and to learn more about Kenny Delmar, uh, the original, what I say, what uh, Foghorn Leghorn, get our free newsletter. It comes out twice a week. All you got to do to subscribe is go to hacksontap.bulletin.com. Sign up, and you'll get a lot of stuff we talk about on the show, a lot of links, a lot of other stuff, too. It's there, and it is free. Favreau, plug your thing, and then we'll get to mail. Yeah, yeah, let's sell some Favreau here. Please go subscribe to Offline with John Favreau. It's my uh, my new podcast about uh, how the internet is breaking politics, culture, our brains, everything else. I have some fantastic guests, Stephen Colbert, Monica Lewinsky, Ezra Klein, all kinds of people, and we're going to be permanently on a new feed uh, starting March 6th, so go subscribe. There you awesome. go. Outstanding. All right, Favre, we'll, let's start the mailbag off with you. We'll give you a good, young, idealistic, uh, wide-eyed, uh, wannabe uh, politico. Um, Sean writes us, I'm a 33-year-old living in Philadelphia who wants to get involved in politics, but I'm finding there are barriers of entry beyond phone and text banking. I'd love to do something on a full-time basis, even if it's just administrative pushing paper for a candidate I believe in. Any suggestions? Yes, that's a great question. Um, my suggestion is to go join a campaign. I am a huge believer in political campaigns because when I was just 21 years old, I started on a campaign pushing paper, not for just a candidate I believe in, but for Robert Gibbs. I was Robert Gibbs's assistant on John Kerry's campaign in 2003, just getting lunches, uh, answering phone calls, all that kind of good stuff. Best day of your life. Best day of my life. And then because campaigns are usually low on staff, low on money, then they are the, they are the closest thing to a meritocracy in politics. If you're there, if you work hard, then, uh, you know, if there's a spot for you, they will reward you. I went from press assistant to a deputy speechwriter, not because I had extensive experience in speechwriting, but because John Kerry was running out of money. They needed a deputy speechwriter, and I was there working hard. And so they uh, they promoted me. So I, I'm always a big believer in going to join a campaign. It could be local. It can be state. Uh, it can be national. But go go find a campaign near you and, uh, and jump on board. Good answer. I couldn't agree more. Show up. 9 o'clock means 8 a.m. And... You know, I get a lot of these great, smart, elite kids. Where do I go online to send my Ivy League resume? I say, well, <laughs> what I would do is go find the congressman you want to work for route between the district office and the airport and go yard sign it. Um, hustle yeah. beats everything in politics. Gibbs, Andrew writes, I was happy to see the San Francisco school board election result. As a center-left voter, I believe there is a quiet majority of pragmatic Democrats who want the identity politics to take a back seat the sound governing and incremental progress. How can someone like myself financially or otherwise support this brand of the Democratic Party? And I think I found my candidate for DNC chair. What do you say, Robert? <laughs> couldn't agree more. And I couldn't agree more with, with Andrew. And just to be clear, you know, the, and, and it was interesting watching some of the reporting from people that were on the other side of the recall, the ones that were somehow thinking we shouldn't recall the three school board members that during the middle of the pandemic were more focused on renaming Abraham Lincoln school into something else. Um, th those recalls got between 72 and 79% of the vote. And you still had people saying, Oh, this is just a bunch of closet conservatives. This is a city where Joe Biden got 85% of the vote in. Okay. There, there aren't a bunch of conservatives just hanging out, not voting. Okay. This was a wake up call. And I, I would say this, you know, th there isn't a quiet, pragmatic majority of Democrats. There's actually a fairly loud one, right? And 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 I, I think we we have to keep being loud because I think it says something to run a competent government. I think it says something uh, to be out there fighting for parents on behalf of getting their kids back to school. Um, and, you know, if, if this wasn't where the Democratic Party was, we'd have had a different presidential nominee in 2016 and Joe Biden wouldn't have won in 2020. He wouldn't have been the nominee, right? But it wasn't Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, right? It was Joe Biden in 2020. And so, you know, I, I think we have to keep pushing this. I think we have to keep reminding folks of this. The base of the party is not what you see on some of the talk shows uh, and, and what's happening on Capitol Hill. That's not the base of the party. It's not. That's the left end of the party. The base of the party is, 
is looking for something that's more pragmatic and wants to see progress in people's lives. And I will just say one more thing on that, Gibbs. Like, the, there were one, one stat on that election. More people turned out to recall those school board members than to elect them in the first place, in the first election. <laughs> and it was yeah. a multiracial, multi-income coalition that's what our party should actually look like. The message was unmistakable. I'm going to read this one quote. I know we don't have time, but I'm going to read it anyway. Yeah. I'm going to read it. This, then I'm going to go back in, into Kenny Delmar for equal time. All right, this, go ahead. You can, but th this, was in, this was in the San Francisco Chronicle. Quote, this is what happens when you try to rename the schools in the middle of a pandemic, said David Thompson, a.k.a. Gabraham Lincoln, a parent dressed in head-to-toe rainbow drag and towering platform shoes who described his persona as a form of protest. We, quote, we wanted to show the diversity of the community behind this recall. I knew, I knew they were going to say, oh, isn't this just a bunch of Republicans? And I'm like, do I look like a Republican? Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. 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 All right, Gibbs, enough propaganda all right. the patrimony. I'm, I'm all about long quotes today, Murph. You called me out. Yeah, no, uh, no. Let's I'm, still, give you... I'm still loopy from that Obama hour. <laughs> okay, what do we got? We got one. And by the way, hallelujah. You know, it's funny. My daughter, uh, young daughter, is now hooked on. We're working our way through all this stuff and night at the museum. And she saw the picture of Roosevelt in front of the museum. I go, yeah, it's the one they took away in the middle of the night. Uh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> okay. It's brutal. Fire we away. got one from Rich. Murphy, I think this is for you. I've been reading about the Utah Senate race and am intrigued by Ben McAdams pushing for the Dems not to nominate anyone so that Evan McMullen can take on Lee. Will the National Democratic Party play ball with this idea? Fascinating idea. Disclosure, Evan is a friend of mine, Evan McMullen, and I've been supportive of his campaign. He, he's kind of a center-right guy, decorated CIA agent, I believe. Uh, and he is running as an independent in Utah, where he ran for president, got, I think, 21% of the vote against Donald Trump in 2016 as an independent. Ben McAdams is a rare thing in, in solid red Utah. He's a Democratic star because he managed to win a congressional office and hold it for a term. So the Democratic convention is coming up, and McAdam is organizing with a lot of other Utah Democrats that rather than nominate a candidate and lose to incumbent Mike Lee, who has pretty weak polling numbers, even has a couple of primary challengers, uh, they ought to nominate nobody and vote hybrid for a Republican who's a lot better than Lee in a in a rule of law conservative who's been very critical of Donald Trump and some of the problems. Polling shows it could become a real race if they do that. And in the last finance report, uh, Evan McMullen raised more money than incumbent Senator Mike Lee, who's definitely in trouble. Uh, but the way to beat him is, is with a, uh, a conservative uh, like McMullen, who's a rule of law conservative and a lot more open to kind of bipartisanship. Now, will the Democrats support him? We will see. I think some staffer is going to have to tell Chuck Schumer that Evan McMullen does not plan to vote for him as leader of the Senate, but he's also said he doesn't plan to vote for McConnell, be kind of the ultimate swing vote. So stay tuned for the Democratic convention, but this thing could get very interesting and very real. Interesting stuff. Favreau, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, this has been a fun treat. I think people learned a lot about the process, about how you robbed the salmon, all, all of the fun stuff. So thank you for, for giving us your insight. And uh, I hope that uh, they listen to this podcast at the White House and take some of your advice uh, on what we're supposed to hear a, a week from tonight. I think the administration is listening because I just got a very angry text from Fish and Wildlife saying, how dare you bring up that goddamn salmon thing again. And if Biden does it, we're going to get him. Gary Locke is still pissed. Uh, thank you, pal. Awesome. You were great. Thanks, guys. Do, John, tell our good friend Tommy that we uh, we love him and we're thinking about it. I will do so. Thanks, guys. Good. And check out their extraordinary podcast, Pod Save America, must listening to Democratic and other political junkies. All right. Well, thank you all. Hackaroos, we'll talk to you next week.